0: The following is a sermon by Pastor Jordan Rogers. You can find sermon videos at www.youtube.com slash Rogers. Thank you for listening today. This morning we're in Acts chapter 3, beginning there in verse 11 down through 26. Let me share a bit of, of history From my life that I don't believe I've ever shared with you, Uh, few people know this. um, More will know after this morning for sure. But there was a there was a time early on in in my ministry, um, in the Lord's ministry through me rather. There was a time when I had enrolled in seminary and I had just begun. My, my work in seminary and some things took place in in my life um, some unforeseen events, some difficulties, um, maybe some youthful ignorance and arrogance play a part. Well, nobody would know anything about that. Um, maybe that played a part in it a bit but I found myself in a very difficult spot. I ended up owing, a seminary that I was attending, owing them, uh, for me at the time, was a significant amount of money. Uh, actually, for me at the time, it was an insurmountable amount of money. I, I, had no, uh, I had no means. I had no means to pay it right then, and I had no foreseeable way of coming by means to pay it anytime soon and uh, it, it was a weight on my soul. It was a burden for me. Uh, it kept me up at night. It, it gave me great grief and trouble um, and probably began the, the graying of the hair a little earlier than I would have, I would have anticipated. But it was, it was quite a weight on my soul. Lo and behold, um, I was scheduled to attend a Bible conference Uh, which I did, and the president of that particular seminary was scheduled to preach at that Bible conference. And so without presumption, without assuming anything, I I waited till I had an opportunity to go to this man, and I was as scared as it gets because I'm looking at the the president of this seminary right in the face, and I spoke to him. Uh, My body was trembling. I'm sure my voice was shaking. I didn't know exactly how I was going to say what I needed to say, and I just— Came out as nervously as I did, and I explained the situation, and I explained the debt that I owed to the seminary and how I I could not pay it. I don't remember everything that he said to me, but I'll I'll never forget that he did look at me, and he said, "It's forgiven." It's off the books. Because you asked me, it's off the books. And I I remember standing here looking this sage in the face and just weeping. Right there in his presence. Because here, here I was with an insurmountable debt, and it is just canceled. Off the books. And I stood there on no merit of my own, once holding a debt that I could never pay, debt-free. All I could say at that point was, praise God. I I don't know what else to say. This This is the grace of God just being shown to me. This morning, you'll see that very same truth magnified infinitum. In, in this text, through faith in Jesus, your sins are canceled. What a powerful truth. Through faith in Jesus, your sins are canceled. The debt of your sins is wiped clean. Through faith in Jesus, the debt of your sins is blotted out. It is canceled. What a magnificent truth. There's no greater truth than that. In Acts chapter 3, beginning there in verse 11, remember though the scene set the stage for you. Quickly here, verse 1 through 10, what we read is that Peter and John, apostles of Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, they are making their way to the temple at 3 p.m., the ninth hour, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, in broad daylight. They're making their way up to the temple for the hour of prayer, for the time of prayer. And as they're going up the steps of the temple, here comes a man being carried along on a mat or on the shoulder of somebody, this man who had been crippled even from his mother's womb and he asks them for alms he asks them for money to help out a poor crippled man and Peter looks at the man and says I have no silver or gold but what I do have I'll give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth I say to you rise up and walk and this man had been at the gate called beautiful of the temple daily begging alms all of these people here in the city knew him everybody that frequented the temple knew this man and as Peter proclaimed healing on this man in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth Peter reached down with his right hand and he lifted that man up the man stood for the first time in his life and he began leaping and jumping and running and praising God as he went into the temple what a a powerful powerful scene that took place there. And it says there in verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John. That word clung is actually the word that you can use to arrest somebody, to apprehend somebody. This man is overcome with joy and gratitude, and he probably doesn't even understand everything that has just taken place to him. But what he does know is that he was once broken, and now he has been made whole. He was hurt, but now he is healed. He's walking now. He's leaping and he's praising God. He is unashamed. He is unafraid to declare his joy in the Lord. He holds nothing back. We would do well to learn from this man's example how he uninhibitedly praised the Lord there in the temple. So while he clung to Peter and John, this is quite a fluid situation, isn't it? You can imagine the commotion that is created as this man who is jumping up and down, screaming praises to the Lord while everybody else is in church. Here's somebody praising God. So it says that while he clung to Peter and John, all the people not a few, all of the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So in the temple complex, what you would have is you would have the inner sanctuary. And outside of the inner sanctuary, you had a huge stone wall, four-sided stone wall. And on the inside of that wall, you had porches all around. Maybe they would have meetings in these porches. They would get together before they would go up for sacrifice or for prayer. One of these porches is called Solomon's porch. And so all of the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Look at verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Most people see this as an event. Peter saw this as an opportunity. Most people would have seen going up to the temple at the hour of prayer as an obligation. Peter saw it as an opportunity. And Peter was willing to stop what he was doing and address this man to share the good news of Jesus with this crippled man who had probably been ignored by many. Peter stopped, shared the good news with him, raised him up, healed him in the name of Jesus. And now this powerful scene is unfolding. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Peter is not going to miss an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to people. We ought to pray on a daily basis that God will make us aware of opportunities that he creates. Opportunities that, that pass us by most of the time, but opportunities to share the gospel with people. Peter sees a group of people gathering together. He doesn't shy away from that group. He takes that opportunity to proclaim. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel. He's speaking to Jewish people. He is speaking to the Jews who not 50 or 60 days before this had put Jesus to death on a cross. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. So he addressed the people, men of Israel, covenant people of God. Why do you wonder at this? Why does this amaze you? Why does it amaze you that this man has been healed? He's been raised up to walk. You can imagine the astonishment and even even Peter's voice or his eyes. He had been walking with Jesus these last three and a half years. These people in Jerusalem had seen the mighty works of Jesus. They had seen him make the lame to walk. The chief priests and the rulers, they were there in the house when Jesus raised the paralytic man up after he forgave his sins. They probably ate the food that the 5,000 ate. They had seen these miracles. Why does it astonish them now? Why do they marvel at this? In fact, not many days before this, you can read about it in John chapter 11, not many days before this, just a couple of days, in fact, before Jesus triumphantly entered into Jerusalem as they praised him, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They put the palm branches down and they receive him, it seems, as king. Just a couple of days before that, Jesus had actually raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was in the multitude of people going with Jesus into Jerusalem. All of these people in Jerusalem had looked a dead man in the face who was now alive. You see, that was the reason, one of the main reasons why the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to put Jesus to death because they saw the mighty works being done through him. And they were afraid that they were going to lose authority. They were going to lose power. So they wanted to put not only Jesus to death, they actually wanted to put Lazarus to death as well. So Peter says, why do you wonder at this? Why is this incredible to you? Or why do you stare at us? Why do you stare at us? as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. You notice how quickly Peter is to take the focus off of himself. Peter could have made a career out of this. And yet Peter takes this opportunity to take the focus off of himself and he is so very quick to give God the glory. We ought to be very quick to give praise to God for the wonderful things that he does. In fact, in fact, there is great warning in Scripture for not giving God glory for the great things that he does. Sometimes we wonder, Lord, why won't you do a great thing here? Lord, why won't you do a wonderful thing here? Maybe the Lord's saying, the last time I did, you didn't give me glory going to be quick to give God glory. In fact, in Acts chapter 12, we'll see in time going forward, in Acts chapter 12, King Herod failed to give God glory. King Herod stood up, and he was trying to calm a riot. He was trying to take care of a situation. It says this in Acts chapter 12, verse 22 through 23, the response of the people who heard Herod's oration. It says, and the people were shouting in response to his speech the voice of a god and not of a man immediately the angel of the lord struck him down because he did not give god the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last we ought to be quick to give god glory for the great things that he's done we ought to be slow in fact we ought never to do it you know In our our world today, you have people, in our our Christian world even, you have ministers who are really more like celebrities. These people are celebrated. What, What I would contend from this, from Peter's example and from Herod's poor example is this, ministers ought to be respected, but they ought never be worshiped. Ministers ought to be respected, but they ought not ever be idolized. I am a sinner just like everyone else. The only reason I stand up here is because God's given a gift to me to share to you. God's given gifts to you just as well to share to the church. Mine just requires me to stand up here. No better than anybody else, no person to be idolized, or to be worshiped in any sort of fashion to God be the glory. Great things he has done. We ought to be quick to give God glory and we ought not ever idolize or worship any man other than the God man Jesus Christ. Peter is very quick to give God the glory here. Why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glory his servant Jesus what you'll see here in this whole text in Peter's explanation of what happens here is this that Peter is going to connect the miracle to the maker he's going to connect the miracle to the maker which is going to validate his master's message He's going to say, you have seen this man healed. It's not me, it's God. And this is God's message to you. The miracle, the whole point of the miracle was to validate the message that Peter is about to declare to the men of Israel. It is to show them that he is a true minister of the Lord and the message that he is preaching is true just as well. Look, Notice that formulaic saying there. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Abraham, the one whom God called out of Ur of the Chaldees and made a a covenant with him. Isaac, his son, whom the Lord had said, take him up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. Later on, God would save Isaac. God would restore and renew his covenant even through Isaac. And then Jacob, who would bear 12 sons, known as the 12 tribes of Israel. God would change Jacob's name to Israel. In the Old Testament, you see this this formulaic statement come to uh, fruition or come about rather the god of abraham the god of isaac the god of jacob in fact you remember quite plainly in exodus chapter 3 when god reveals himself to moses there at the burning bush moses is quite bewildered because he sees a bush on fire there in the middle of the wilderness and yet that bush is not consumed Something miraculous is taking place here. So Moses goes to see this bush and to see what's going on. As he came near to that bush, God spoke. Exodus chapter 3, verse 5 through 6. Then he, that's God, said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he, that's Moses, said, I am the God, or that's God rather, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. You see how Peter is connecting? Peter is connecting the miracle to the very God of covenant Israel. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. Peter is not distancing himself from them. He's a man just like them. He is a Jew just like them, the God of our fathers. And he is saying that the God of Christianity and the God of Judaism are the same. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, look what God did, glorified his servant Jesus. Notice some contrast here. God the Father, the God of Abraham, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. And he decided to release him. You see what he's done there? Pilate, a Gentile Roman ruler, was more willing to acknowledge the righteousness of Jesus Christ than even the Jewish people who should have received him. Moreover, the God of their fathers glorified Jesus, whereas they rejected Jesus says in John chapter 1 verse 9 through 13 that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. Jesus was mocked. He was beaten. He was scorned. He was ridiculed. He was put to death there on the cross coming to his own and his own people rejecting him. Now look at Verse 14, but you denied. The holy. There's no one like Jesus. You know there is no one like Jesus doing all these wonders and signs in your presence, but you denied the holy and righteous one, the one who had never done anything wrong. He had perfectly upheld the law of Moses, perfectly upheld the law of God, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You remember there at the end of the Gospel of Luke when they are standing before Pilate and Pilate is going to release a prisoner to them. Pilate wants to release Jesus and to let him go free because Pilate, as hard as he searches, as many questions as he asks, he cannot find a single fault in Jesus And yet that crowd, in all of their violent, riotous, rebellious, willful behavior, they rebel against God and they say, Crucify Jesus, release to us Barabbas. Release to us a murderer. And what you see take place there is the sinless Son of God taking the place of an unrighteous murderer. When I spoke on that text, what I called that was the glorious exchange where God exchanged the righteous for the unrighteous. God put Jesus on the cross so that Barabbas didn't have to go there. That cross is empty, whereas we should be on it, the unrighteous. And the reason that cross is empty is because Jesus hung on it. Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous, exchanged right there in their presence for a murderer. Verse 15 says, And you killed the author of life. I would hesitate to say that there is any statement in all of history that is more paradoxical than that statement. And paradox is a statement that is seemingly absurd, but it's true. Statement that seems absurd, but it is true. Notice what he says about the son of God. He says, you killed the author of life. It's paradoxical because you would say, well, you can't kill the author of life. You can't kill the son of God. And that statement would be absolutely true. You cannot kill the author of life. You cannot kill the son of God unless he lays down his life. Here's Jesus laying down his life, giving himself over to the hands of lawless men, undergoing the punishment of a criminal, though he's without sin. You killed the author of life. Look how Peter is heaping condemnation upon condemnation upon these people, these Jewish men who put the Lord Jesus to death. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. They hang Jesus on a cross. God seats Jesus on a throne. They mock Jesus. God magnifies Jesus. They treated Jesus the exact opposite of the way that God the Father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob treated Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Peter says this is verifiable fact. We saw Jesus face to face. Notice that nobody denies that. Nowhere in the New Testament here do you see anybody denying the resurrection of Jesus. To this we are witnesses, verse 16, and his name, by faith in his name, here's the explanation of the miracle. By faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man perfect health in the presence of you all. A question that I have when I read verse 16 is this, is the faith here belonging to the once crippled man or does the faith here belong to Peter and John? You know, when you read the text and you examine it at length, uh, the text is actually inconclusive about whose faith it is. Maybe it's Peter and John's, maybe it's the once crippled man's faith, or maybe it's just all three, all three of them have faith in Jesus. The the point is not whose faith is it. The point is that faith in Jesus is life-giving. Faith in Jesus is life-giving. Look at verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. When I read verse 17, it makes me scratch my head. I know you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. And you read that, you may think the same thing that I do. In what way did they act in ignorance? They saw the works of Jesus. They knew he was the Christ. They knew that he is the Son of God. And yet they willfully, violently put him to death. And yet, Peter here, in this statement in particular, makes an astoundingly gracious statement. You see the grace in verse 17? These people willfully did it, they, they knew what they were doing, it seemed. But Peter says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Though it seemed that they knew exactly what they did, Peter says, you acted in ignorance. Okay? Did they act in ignorance? Peter says that they did. The point of this text is not whether or not they acted in ignorance. The point of the text is that God forgives sins through Jesus. Even the most grave, heinous sins, God forgives them. And where you wouldn't expect to see grace, namely verse 17, you wouldn't expect to see that because Peter has just heaped condemnation on these men's shoulders. Where you wouldn't expect to see grace, now you actually see grace. Look at verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that this that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. I challenge you to read Isaiah chapter 53, chapter 52 through 53 and Psalm chapter 22 to see exactly what he's talking about, how the prophets foretold of the suffering of Christ. But what he foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. What you'll see, and the remainder of this text. And what he has already told us is this, that Jesus is not foreign to Judaism. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Jesus is not foreign to being a Jew. He is the perfect Jew. Jesus is not foreign to Yahweh. He is the son of Yahweh. He is his very image. He is everything that Moses and all the prophets ever pointed to. He's looking at these men, these men of Israel who had been in the temple to worship Yahweh, and he is saying, the Yahweh that you worship approved of Jesus because he's the son of God. And the Yahweh you worship who empowered these prophets to tell of his coming, they testify that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is not foreign to Judaism. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Jesus is not antithetical to the Old Testament. He is the expectation of the Old Testament. Look at verse 19. So what do we do because of this? What do we do because we rejected Jesus and put him to death? Peter says in verse 19, repent. We've talked about that word quite a bit. Repent, repent, means having a change of mind, literally, to change one's mind. He says, repent, change your mind therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repent. You know, that word there, interesting part of speech, that word is a verb and it's also an imperative. In the Greek, you can see that that's a command. Repentance is a command of Scripture. It's not an option. It's never an option there in Scripture. It's always a command. See, we can't come to God. No person comes to God on their own terms. We don't lay it out and say, God, I'll come to you if I can do this, this, and this. No. God says repent. It's a command, not an option. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted That word blotted literally means to, to wipe away. It means to cancel, to obliterate. It actually has the connotation of taking a ledger, opening a book of our accounts where everything that we have ever done is recorded. And that word has the connotation of taking a pen to the debts that we owe to the invoice that we owe God. For when we lie, when we lust, when we cheat, when we steal, when we blaspheme his name, God takes a pen and he does this. Or just like I have that piece of paper over there, when you order a book and it says you owe $20, guess what? When $20 is placed on on that paper, you know what we do? We write paid no no more debt owed that's what that word means in fact that word is used elsewhere in colossians chapter 2 verse 13 and 14 Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, meaning you didn't keep the law of God, you're dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Well, how does God forgive us of the debt we owe in his ledger? How does he forgive us of that? He says, verse 14, Colossians 2, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. See, for God to forgive us of our sins, to cancel it, God does not sweep our sins under the rug. No, the books have to be reconciled. So God takes that certificate of debt that each one of us have written with our own lives God takes that certificate of debt and he put it on Jesus' back when he nailed him on the cross. Thereby, God can take out his ledger, take out his pen, and see all the things that we've ever done. Would anybody like to see the book of everything that they'd ever done? We try to forget those things because they make us feel bad because they are bad. God has record of that book. When we have our faith in Jesus, what does the text tell us? Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. When you turn from your sins, when you have a change of mind and you come back to God, God takes out his pen, his everlasting pen, and he marks all of those things out. That your sins may be blotted out, verse 20, that times of refreshing may come. What does repentance look like for these men? Remember, the first thing we should do when we look at a text of Scripture is understand what it meant then. Peter is looking the men, the very men who hung Jesus on the cross. Peter is looking those men in the face. I'm sure that some of those liars who were there at the mock trial of Jesus, they're sitting right there in the crowd. The chief priests and the rulers and the scribes, they live there around the temple. You better believe that they are there. Peter looks at them and tells them to repent. The people who murdered the Son of God, what does repentance look like for them? Two things. Two things that repentance looks like, for, looks like for them. First, repentance looks like this. They begin with accepting Jesus as their Lord. Whereas they once mocked him, now they magnify him. Whereas once they wanted to see him on a cross, now they see him on the throne. Now they accept him as Lord. Now they turn to Jesus and say, Master, Lord, lead me. That's the first way that they repent. The second way that they repent is this, that they begin living lives of righteousness. They love God with all their being and they love their neighbor as themselves. That's what it meant for them then. It's the same thing that it means for us now. Repentance means the same thing now that it did 2,000 years ago. Whereas once we look at Jesus as somebody who wants to take things away from us, doesn't want us to do fun things, now we look at Jesus as Savior and Lord, the one who died for the bad things that we did, the one who canceled the debt of sin standing against us. And whereas we would once mock Jesus, now we magnify him. Whereas once we would rather see him on a cross, shut him up, put him away, now we glorify him on the throne of our lives. Whereas once we wanted to do things on our own, now we do things his way. We live lives of righteousness, loving God and loving each other, loving our neighbors. Look at verse 20, that times of refreshing. You see, repentance is not without its reward Repentance not only means that your sins are blotted out of God's book. Repentance means that times of refreshing will come. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Peter is saying this, not only are your sins forgiven when you place your faith in Jesus, but now you are made ready and prepared for the time of refreshing that is coming from God when he sends his son Jesus back into the earth to rule and to reign forever. He says, this is time of refreshing that is for you. Now, we look at this, and some people may say this about their own life. I don't feel too refreshed right now. In fact, I feel like my life is at a dead end. I feel like my life has come to a dead end. I feel like I am at the end of my rope. There's one thing that you can do. Everybody knows this. Everybody who drives, at least you understand this. What is the one thing that you can do when you come to a dead end? Turn around. That's it. It's exactly what Peter says. You have all come to a dead end. You have all put yourself in God's crosshairs by putting Jesus, his son, to death. And you have come to the dead end of your life and you better turn around. And when you turn around, there's new roads to drive with Jesus. There's new life to tread there with Jesus. Times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Look at verse 22 and 23. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. He says, Moses told you about the coming of Jesus long ago, that he would be a prophet among you in your midst. He would come to his own people. Look at the consequence of not listening to him. And it shall be, verse 23, that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Shall be destroyed from the people. You know, an atheist fights a losing battle. Someone who rejects the Lord Jesus, maybe they don't call themselves an atheist. Maybe they just say they're not Christian. They won't be a Christian. They reject Jesus. They reject God. You know, when I read this text, what I I see is this. One of the things that I see is this. You see it there in verse 23. Every soul who does not listen to that prophet doesn't listen to Jesus shall be destroyed. When a person rejects Jesus, that's not God's problem. That's their problem. It's not God's problem. It is their problem. If we refuse to give God glory, if any person in this world refuses to give God glory, we have to understand that doesn't diminish God's glory at all. We don't have to take up for Jesus. We don't have to build Jesus up. When people mock him, it doesn't diminish God's glory. Remember this, the world could crucify Jesus, but God would raise him up from the dead. The world could hang Jesus on a cross. God would seat Jesus on a throne. Jesus does not need glory from man. Jesus receives glory from God. And when people rebel against Jesus, they don't diminish his glory whatsoever. And it's not God's problem. God is not lacking. God is not going bankrupt. It's not his problem. It's not the church's problem. It's the person who is rebelling. It is the Their problem, and when they reject the Lord Jesus, they are standing squarely in God's crosshairs. That's what verse 23 says. When somebody rejects the Lord Jesus, rejects his word, that they find themselves in the center of God's crosshairs, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. The person who rebels against the Lord Jesus before they die in their life, they are towing the line between earth and hell. That's all they're doing. Even when they shake their fist at heaven, they're not stealing God's glory. They're just towing the line between earth and hell. Look at verse 25 and 26. You... You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant, don't miss that, that God made with your fathers. If anybody should have received Jesus, it is these men. They are sons of the covenant promises of God. Saying to Abraham, and in your offspring, Genesis 22, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, meaning he has sent him to you, he has made him incarnate in the flesh, God in the flesh, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Again, who is he talking to? He is talking to Jewish people in the first century, the very ones who witnessed and participated in the crucifixion of the Son of God. First thing you notice is that grace is offered even to those who crucified the Son of God. What have you done? There's no sin that a person commits that God can't forgive. There's no sin that a person commits that God won't forgive other than the sin of rejecting the Lord Jesus. He's looking at the people who crucified him and he says, I know you you acted in ignorance, but if you'll repent, God will take his ledger and everything that he wrote down that you did and he'll just mark it out of his book. He'll take it out. God having raised up his servant sent him to you first to bless to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness for those who are being born again to those who are called of God the call of repentance seems like a call of blessing It is the scent of life unto life. You mean that I can turn from the things that I've done wrong and God would give me a new life? It seems like a glorious blessing for them, for those who are perishing in their sins, who don't wanna let go. It seems like a curse that God would take away their sins. They, They don't want to do that. Well, guess what? That decision belongs to each and every person. Look at what it says here. He sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. To bless you by turning every one of you. He has already called them the sons of the prophets. He has called them the sons of the covenant promises of God. And yet he's calling these very men to repent and be saved. Not even the covenant people of God are exempt from repentance and faith in Jesus. one thing we need to understand from that is he says, every one of you, salvation is not a corporate matter. You don't have Christian nations. There are Christian individuals. A Christian individual is a person who on their own came to faith in the Lord Jesus. They repented of their sins and they trusted in him. Salvation is not a corporate matter. You cannot believe enough to get your children into heaven. You can't believe enough to get your spouse into heaven. You have to take care of you. You have to believe on your own and your children and your parents, they have to believe on their own. Every person has to come to that decision on their own. You know, the wonderful truth of this text seems like a very heavy text because Peter's talking all about their sins and the terrible thing that they did. The truth of that text is this, that through faith in Jesus, the debt of your sins is canceled that's what he's telling these people these men some of them who may still have blood stains from Jesus' crucifixion on their robes he's saying god will forgive even that text is going to tell us later on we'll see this next week the text is going to tell us that there were thousands of people that day who heard the good news about jesus and they ran to rescue they ran to the Lord and they were born again because when they heard the news that God would bless them from turning, from turning them from their wickedness, they said, I've got to receive the Lord Jesus. I've got to have my sins blotted out. Thank you for listening today. I want to encourage you to subscribe to the podcast and tune in next time as we study God's Word together.